You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, you're hearing this if you're subscribing either to the premium podcast or if you're a Patreon supporter. And so we did a couple podcasts right before the election, but there was a lot of stories left over because originally I wanted to do 99 stories about presidential campaigns. So for you, you're my supporters, and thank you. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of them. We talked about the election of 1872 where Grant beat Horace Greeley. What a story. Um, most famous for the fact that Greeley was kind of weird and also that Greeley died before the Electoral College met. And that's the first time that that had ever happened. And it's the, um, actually the last time that it happened as well. It did happen with a vice presidential candidate, John Sherman, in 1912 as well. In that election of 1872, Grant got one vote that he could not have expected And that would cause a great controversy and also a movement and would even have some limited repercussions for 2020. Susan B. Anthony in um, New York State became an activist for women's rights in her 30s. Family's very active in politics. Her brother was an abolitionist and a fighter in Bleeding Kansas. The cause that she bled for was a woman's rights to vote. She would spend the next 50-plus years of her life fighting for the right to vote. And it's a cause that unfortunately would not succeed until the ratification of the 19th Amendment 14 years after her death. But she did see successes along the way, various states allowing votes and the issue definitely being moved forward before her death. She did something greatly to contribute to it. She got a vote in the ballot box in the 1872 election, and that vote was counted. It couldn't be removed. It happened in Rochester, New York, November 5th, 1872. But it would be different from what happens when a woman votes today because she would be prosecuted for it. On the other hand, Anthony got a lot of interest, attention, and it seems like personal joy out of that very prosecution and making fun of the people prosecuting her. The voting booth, such it was back then, was set up in a barber shop. And so on November 1st, 1872, as you had to do in these days, Anthony and her three sisters entered the voter registration office, which in a few days is going to be the polling place. You have to register first. So Susan B. Anthony goes up to the election inspectors and demands that she and her friend are registered as voters. The inspectors say no. Well, she responds, if you refuse us our rights as citizens, I will bring charges against you in criminal court. And I will sue each of you personally for large exemplary damages. They're a little shocked by this, but she adds something else. I know I can win. I have Judge Selden as a lawyer. He's a judge that is known and respected in the county. So the stunned inspectors discuss this situation. Well, if they don't register these women, that's their call and then it's on them. 
if they do register, someone else can disqualify them down the line. So they vote to allow Anthony and her three sisters to register to vote in Rochester's 8th Ward. A big issue is created now, and the press isn't with her. The Rochester Union and Advertiser editorialized in its November 4th edition. Citizenship no more carries the right to vote than it carries the power to fly to the moon. If these women in the 8th Ward offer to vote, they should be challenged. And if they take the oaths and the inspectors receive and deposit their ballots, they should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Well, that is what happens. After the polls open, Anthony and seven or eight other women cast ballots. The inspectors have a choice again, and they vote. And there's three of them. Two say yes, and one says no. And so Anthony's folded ballot was deposited into the ballot box for one of the inspectors. She, like her brother and family, is a Republican and votes for Grant. She's elated. She tells friends, well, I have gone and done it. Positively voted the Republican ticket. This a.m. at 7 o'clock and swore my vote in at that. Was registered on Friday. Then on Sunday, others, some 20 or 30 other women tried to register, but all save two were refused. But watching Anthony vote is a cranky old man and a Sylvester Lewis. Not only is it against his morals, but he thinks in Rochester, where Republicans are already winning, this might destroy his party if women start voting. It will lead to more Republican votes. Lewis files a complaint, charging Anthony with casting an illegal vote. The United States Commissioner, William Stores, acted upon Lewis's complaint by issuing a warrant for Anthony's arrest. This is uh, nine days after the election. The warrant charged Anthony with voting in a federal election without having a lawful right to vote and in violation of Section 19 of an act of Congress. This is from a law enacted in 1870, the Enforcement Act. It's supposed to be there to help people vote, particularly um, black citizens in the South. And Section 19 is what gives the government federal jurisdiction in what otherwise would be, you know, a state-run election. But Storrs uses it. The Enforcement Act carried a maximum penalty of $500 over three years imprisonment. So yes, in Anthony's case, the Grant administration is using its power to punish someone that voted for it. On January 24, 1873, a grand jury meets of 20 men returns an indictment against Anthony charging her with knowing wrongfully and unlawfully voting for a member of Congress without having a lawful right to vote. The said Susan B. Anthony being then and there a person of the female sex. Anthony ends up in the subsequent trial getting a fine and a lot of publicity in the Rochester area and nationally. She never pays the fine. 2020, she's posthumously pardoned by President Trump, though most people who know the history of the story know that Anthony never wanted any kind of pardon. And in fact, um, in, 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 in all that it did to move the cause of uh, women voting forward, like that this whole thing happened, when one of the marshals comes to arrest her, she demands that she be put in handcuffs like anyone else. Don't just walk me to the jail cell, you know, is her, is her thing. We didn't get a chance to talk about the 1908 election. You know, originally, as I said, I planned like 99 stories of the campaign, and there were going to be something for almost every election. So 1908 is is um, Taft versus William Jennings Bryan. This is Bryan's third and last campaign, and it's not going to go well. 
And a lot of Democrats know it. There's a lot of Democrats, particularly anyone on the East Coast, who know that if they run William Jennings Bryan again a third time after 1896 and 1900, they're going to lose. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt has just had a successful presidency by any measure. Sure, there's a couple issues to run against him on. There's always an opportunity for an opposition party to snatch the presidency away. So a lot of people are looking for someone else for the Democratic nomination. And they settle on a fellow named John Albert Johnson. He's the governor of Minnesota. Minnesota is a heavily Republican state, but Johnson is a Democrat. It also makes him one of the few Democrats in the Midwest region who have a significant title. You know, most Democrats are either going to be in New York, kind of put there by the Tammany Hall, in the South, or in the West like Brian. He's got a rags-to-riches story. Mother grew up poor. The, the, the father abandoned the family. Johnson has to, has to work to support the family. And in his first run for governor, the Republicans do something absolutely stupid. They, quote, expose the story of Johnson's life. And Johnson's quite embarrassed by it. his father's an alcoholic, left the family. You know, this guy's not coming from society. Well, it was the dumbest thing the opponents could do because he gets support, incredible amounts of support, overwhelming support, even from Republicans in the election for governor of Minnesota, which he'll end up winning three elections to governor of that state. Harper's Weekly profiles him in a series of five possible Democratic presidential candidates. One of those will also be Woodrow Wilson, although Woodrow Wilson doesn't end up getting the nomination at all or even running for it in 1908, but he's talked about by Harper's early on. He's the president of Princeton at this time. But back to Johnson. Um, the New York World lists 16 candidates better suited for the Democratic nomination than Bryan, and he's on it. The Minnesota Democratic State Convention endorses Johnson for president. He does not decline it. Now, what happens here? Because you even have in Johnson, and there's cartoons that are showing it, the, somebody that even Theodore Roosevelt, the Republican president, kind of admires. And he comes down to Washington, and there's a number of dinners where he's present at, and he speaks at, and the press adore him. And one speech, he's, one uh, dinner, he's just getting along very well with Roosevelt. And then reporters come over to talk to him. He puts his um, foot up on a, a crate and just starts answering questions from these reporters. And he's very free and very talkative. And uh, you get the sense T.R. kind of likes him too. Maybe not going to support him politically, but not going to hate on him the same way he will with Brian. So... Probably one of their uh, better candidates. And what's the um, trouble? Well, by this point in 1908, William Jennings Bryan has the Democratic machinery uh, stacked against him. First of all, the convention is going to be in Denver. That's a Western state. That's where the silver issue is going to be big, and that's Bryan's issue. Um, you know, it's just where he has a, a lot of support. So being the host city, uh, being a Bryanite area, doesn't help Johnson. Secondly, Johnson runs a little bit too late. He, he takes his time in deciding that he'll actually accept a nomination for president if offered. And so it allows um, a lot of the state and local Democratic committees to already endorse Bryan. And Johnson does mount a challenge to Bryan at the convention, 
but on the first ballot, loses. It's a shame for Democrats because Brian will get that nomination. One of the things in order to get the nomination, he's, he's asked and it's demanded that he stops talking about silver and gold. You know, when he first runs in 1896, his big thing is the silver and gold, the issue of silver money. But it's very divisive, both within the Democratic Party and for sectional areas of the country. So this time they say, if you want that nomination, you got to stop talking about that. Talk about tariffs, and tariffs are going to be the main issue, because it is the difference between Democrats and Republicans now. Um, Theodore Roosevelt has been arguably progressive, not not completely, but he's enacted new laws. Um, the I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One issue you got is that Theodore Roosevelt, Taft, they're both very big on tariffs. You also have the trust issue. Um, the the idea of monopolies. And TR has done a little bit against trusts. After we'll do more, but Brian and Democrats see an opening there. They select John W. Kern, a former state senator and two-time gubernatorial candidate from Indiana. The problem is Kern lost both of those runs for governor of Indiana. So the New York Times points out the Democratic national ticket was consistent. A man twice defeated for the presidency at the head of it, a man twice defeated for governor at the tail of it. And you get that joke from Republicans, vote for Taft now, because you can vote for Brian anytime. <laughs> he runs so much, three times, is, is still very unusual to see in history any, any, anything recent like that where somebody's running that much. But he's already down. Brian's going to make a key mistake. He's going to make the issue about campaign finance. He knows that both Roosevelt 
you know, when Roosevelt went after some of the big trusts and and disappointed um, some of the big mining interests with what he did with coal strikes and and things like that. He made a few moves, but generally business liked him, and he raised a lot of money in the 1904 election. And Democrats knew they were going to do this again in 1908, so they try to go after campaign finance and to make a law that would make it transparent. Well, one of the problems is is that Bryant's campaign treasurer is going to be Oklahoma Governor Charles Haskell. William Hurst is going to reveal in his papers that Haskell and U.S. Senator Joseph Foraker of uh, Ohio, I believe, is accepting bribes in an attempt to stop the antitrust suit against Standard Oil. Taft cuts off his his ties with Senator Foraker, but Bryan can't afford to cut off his ties to Haskell, the guy's financing the entire Democrat. The train's going to stop. He also doesn't believe the charges. Now, the sitting president, Theodore Roosevelt, gets involved in the campaign and says, Bryan's association with Haskell is a scandal and a disgrace. Bryan attempts to raise money from the people and uh, soliciting dollars from ordinary citizens. 50,000 people contribute to his campaign, but it leads to $250,000. Now, in today's house, I don't know. That's something like running a campaign with $10 million, which, eh, that's going to be tough. I, I don't think it w- works the same way because there's not TV ads. Your big expenses are the trains, and very often railroad companies provided cars to, to uh, and special privileges to presidential efforts. And handbills and 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 other um support so i i think that uh newspaper advertisements and the like so i mean you had a little bit less but it was still a poorly funded campaign although he's going to come out big on the issue later brian ignores the issue of alcohol prohibition um it's too divisive he runs he stumps all over but now brian is middle-aged he's no longer the the boy orator from the plot river He would collapse in bed after a day of speaking and sleep for a long time. He was still getting crowds, but he lost the election. One of the biggest defeats in the Electoral College was 321 to 162 in the popular vote, 52 to 43 percent. He did worse than he had done in 1896 and 1900. One of the stories I wanted to highlight, because it was kind of a key of the 1988 election, that both helped and in some ways hurt candidate and current Vice President George H.W. Bush. He campaigns in a New Jersey flag factory because he really wanted to emphasize patriotism. My friends, he says, flag sales are doing well and America's doing great. He sought to turn the Pledge of Allegiance into the flag into an election issue. And he tours the Anine Flag Company in New Jersey and speaks at a rally outside. The company president, Randy Beard, gladly introduces Bush and says that flag demand has never been as strong as it has during the Reagan-Bush administration. I don't know why it happened, but it happened during the Reagan-Bush watch, he says. So elect me because flags are selling. Now he has two issues. One is that... um, In Massachusetts, Dukakis had passed a law that made it um, not necessary for schools to do the Pledge of Allegiance if they did not wish to, Uh, and that was the issue that he used. The images of it 
make Bush look great on TV. I also think it's comparing Crest to today when you have a slogan like make America great again. And some people, and I'm sure there's supporters that love it, and other people will think it's kind of like candy-ish. Don't think that that's something new. When, like, the Bushes were actually running, there are plenty of appeals to patriotism, elect me because of patriotism, and plenty of flags. Some reporters found it a little silly, and there is definitely commentary about that. After the speech, Bush stops at a Glenwood Diner in New Jersey, just a couple blocks away from where the flag factory is. Orders a cup of coffee, orders a piece of crumb cake, and he's talking with some of the patrons who happen to be there in the diner. So several women who frequent this diner, you know, are happy to see the vice president and the candidate and says, you know, you look a lot better in person than on television. And he asked him why. Well, one, Lucy Galeotto says, because you're relaxed. She stopped by the diner with friends on the way home from a city senior citizen's exercise class. This way, everything is spontaneous. Like when you're sitting here in the diner, you may have something there, Vice President Bush says. With his nationally televised debate, a reporter says, with Dukakis less than a week away, Bush said he would have to work on appearing more relaxed in front of the cameras. Well, he did well in that debate. There might be something there. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.